for joining us for the second podcast in our latest series talking about cryptocurrencies and digital assets. I'm Libby Hall, Director of Communications for Oyster Consulting. In our previous podcast, Oyster's Ed Wagner and Steve Gannon, a partner at the law firm of Davis Wright Tremaine, walked through the evolution of the crypto asset class. Today, Steve and Ed discuss the regulatory actions that are occurring around digital assets, including cases that the SEC is bringing and where they see these cases going. You can learn more about Ed and Steve by visiting our website at oysterllc.com. Let's pick up where we left off. The SEC has been extremely aggressive in asserting their jurisdiction um, as of late. So I wonder if you can talk about, you know, that evolution has happened in terms of the, the regulation of these and um, the SECs, the, the cases that the SEC are bringing and um, you, where you see these cases going. Sure. Well, I'm not I'm not going to go too far in predicting what the results are going to be. You got to <laughs> leave that to the courts. But sure. Uh, but I will say this. Let's let's start from the beginning with two propositions. One is the standard SEC definition of a security as developed in the famous Howey case, the the sale of portions of orange groves that were going to be managed by uh, the company, the promoter that was selling uh, those uh, particular lots. The uh, it, so the, the the classic is it has to be an investment of money. Number one. Second prong is in a common enterprise. And then third is uh, with profits to be made primarily, the word actually is solely, but the courts have, have softened it to primarily, primarily from the efforts of others. So that definition has been durable throughout the years. The, the court has said not only about the securities laws in general, but about the Howey test in particular, that it should be read broadly to encompass all the different kind of schemes and creative ideas that individuals and promoters can can come up with in order, quite frankly, to avoid uh, the, the regulation or the application of the securities laws to their particular um, uh, investment scheme. So it is, it is read uh, broadly. However, then you get into the specific use cases. And, and now we're very close to the nub of what the, what the real difficult issue can be around what's called regulation by enforcement, a phrase that I'm guessing that uh, many of your listeners, if not all of them, have heard before. When you are not regulating by rules, which apply in the same way across the board to everybody, and you're regulating by enforcement, what you're trying to do is do things on a case-by-case basis. And that can be, in some instances, okay or successful. There were some recent, a few years back, uh, some uh, commission sweeps done in connection with 12B1 fees. The commission had tried for a long, long time to pass rules that satisfied everybody in connection with 12B1 fees, and they couldn't quite get there. And so they decided, in essence, they changed the law kind of by brute force and awkwardness and practicality. They didn't actually amend the rule, but they did uh, bring a whole lot of enforcement actions, all of which were settled in connection with additional disclosures around the payment of those kinds of fees uh, to advisors. So that, as a practical matter, was a was a successful 
uh, use of regulation by enforcement from the commission's perspective. But it also was talking about basically the same thing. It was the same fee with very similar disclosures from each and every advisor. Here, the nature and quality of the asset differs from promoter to promoter, sponsor to sponsor. And so that makes it harder. So what exactly is an investment of money? If I buy a, a, a thing, I buy a product that is going to help me generate uh, some sort of digital asset reward, is that is my purchase of that product, is that an investment of money? Or have I just bought a product? I mean, you know, I can buy, I can buy an iPhone with the belief and the hope that I'm going to be able to use that iPhone in a way that I'm going to generate some games or something else, or I'm going to make a lot of money. Is the sale of the iPhone to me a security? Okay, well, I'm not sure. That's a, that's a bit of a head scratcher. Probably not. Now, the SEC would say, well, that's not what we're talking about in, in this instance. So let's go to commonality. What is What actually is commonality? Are all of the people who are purchasers of these digital assets treated in the same way? Are all of the digital assets, and this is the case, for example, in, in the Ripple matter, which we've uh, which we've alluded to uh, briefly. Ripple, very well-known uh, provider of digital asset security uh, services and tokens. Um, <clears throat> and I meant to say services, by the way, not securities. Um, <clears throat> they, um, they, um, they have a, a, a token called XRP that's used globally uh, in order to facilitate um, payments, uh, mostly institutional payments. Has a heck of a lot of utility. The SEC would say XRP is a security and it's a common interest because the actions of Ripple have to do with the value of XRP. That is, the sponsor itself is helping drive the value of the coin. So there's commonality there and that everybody who owns XRP is treated essentially in the same way. What if you have a situation where there's no connection between the sponsor and what happens to the value of the reward itself? So, for example, in a in a in a typical manner, um, the, uh, the 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 Tenth Circuit, for example, has a test that says that these that that securities are supposed to have the characteristics of a stock. So, think about that for a moment. I buy a share of stock in the Ed Wagner Company, and our friend uh, Bob buys another share of stock in the Ed Wagner Company. He and I are going to be treated exactly the same. We're going to get the same dividends. The value is going to go up or down depending on the success of the Ed Wagner enterprise. That's not necessarily the case with Ripple and the value of XRP. They might be connected. They might not be connected. If there's no connection at all, and if there's no connection between how different uh, purchasers of XRP might benefit, because there may be certain actions that are required of different XRP holders, then it's a little bit difficult to say that there's commonality there. Now, the SEC will, they're, they've been hanging tough on this. They'll say that there's, there's commonality as long as there's a connection. And then from the efforts of others, um, a lot of digital assets, you purchase them and the market is going to do what the market's going to do and you're going to benefit without any uh, action that you need to take at all. But in some cases, the, the actual tokens have utility based on what you as the token owner do 
with that token and you might do something that is the same or different than your neighbor. So is it really, if you have an expectation of profit, can you say that it, how much does it relate to the efforts of others? The efforts of others certainly went into generating the token, but do they have anything to do with actually driving value for that token? So uh, it becomes very, very complex. And as you can see, the results may differ depending on what actually the token is and what it does, which gets us to Wahi, which is the case that, and uh, folks may remember this, uh, the Wahi brothers, along with a couple of friends, uh, worked at Coinbase, <clears throat> and they wound up trading ahead of Coinbase and uh, uh, trading ahead of the listing or not listing of different uh, tokens or coins on the Coinbase exchange. And there happened to be historically a relationship between the value of what happened to the tokens once they either got listed or didn't get listed on Coinbase. So if they got listed, typically almost always they went up in value. If they didn't get listed, they were gonna go down in value. These folks worked at Coinbase. They knew what coins were gonna be listed or what weren't gonna be listed, and they would go out and buy them. The um, <clears throat> all of that sounds, you know, pretty kind of not right and kind of fraudulent. And in fact, a couple of the guys fled to India, but a couple of them are in the U.S. and they in fact pled guilty to wire fraud. However, whether or not what it is they were they were actually buying and selling were securities is pretty important because if they're not securities, the SEC doesn't have any jurisdiction. So the Wahis have pled guilty to the crime of wire fraud, but what they haven't done is they haven't settled with the SEC. The SEC came in and sued them and said, um, well, you know, you pled guilty and so these are securities and I think they believe the Wahi brothers are gonna settle. Turns out the Wahi brothers haven't settled. The Wahi brothers are saying, there were nine tokens that you guys charged us with. Those nine tokens are not securities. And Coinbase takes the view that no tokens, zero, that are ever listed on their exchange are securities. And they're, they're digging in fairly hard on that. So that's gonna be uh, an incredibly interesting matter that when you think about it, is gonna have to be litigated coin by coin by coin, because they're all gonna have different characteristics and those characteristics are gonna drive whether or not they were securities, just like, for example, yeah, the sale of the contract for the, the management of the orange groves and the payment of the same uh, share of profits to everybody, Supreme Court said that was a contract. But the oranges, the oranges weren't, weren't securities. They were, you know, it was, it was a combination of things. You know, yes. so one, one question I have just in thinking about, you know, that, that everyone has said, all the regulators have said that Bitcoin is a commodity. And then yeah. there's this, this issue um, with, the, with the Ripple case. Where's, where's the primary difference there? Is it the um, efforts of others issue? Where, what, in, in terms of what the SEC is looking at, where do you, you see the differences I'd that they're focusing both, on? I'd say it's both commonality and efforts of others. And if you look at, if you look at what, how the SEC has dealt with, so they, they actually have, their theories have been reasonably flexible and they've had some success with this because what they're saying is they're saying, yes, this is indeed a new type of thing 
but the same principles broadly apply. So, for example, what they would say, and this is, uh, you've seen this in both the kick called, it's K-I-K uh, case, and also in the library case, library being L-B-R-Y, which were uh, two digital asset projects where the court held, yes, these are securities. And what the SEC argued is, you can't look at any individual characteristic by itself and say, okay, it has this characteristic, it has utility, and therefore it's not a security. What the SEC would say is, you got to look at the whole ecosystem because these things were not planned like people plan to issue shares of stock, but nonetheless, they are investments which would have no value unless there were there was some sort of commonality. You need a market to develop in some way for these things to have value. So there's your common enterprise. And then the developers, if they're developing this to have utility, the token itself is going to have is going to increase in value the more utility it has. So what they say is pull the camera back. Don't don't be too narrowly focused on one or two characteristics. Pull the camera back, look at the whole thing. And if the ecosystem as a whole looks like, you know, one, it's a it's a contract, a contract for the purchase or sale of a particular token or a coin. Uh, two, there are a lot of people getting together to pool their funds to help uh, fund and raise money so that the promoters can develop this system. And then three, as they develop more utility, the value of the coin tends to go up. What the SEC would say is, that's it. I've got my three elements. I'm good to go. I, I haven't, by the way, read the cases for yourselves. I haven't. I haven't tried to state the holdings or or, or even the facts precisely, but roughly that's where the SEC uh, is headed. There are bones you can pick with each one of those arguments, and people are going to pick bones going forward on each and every case. In thinking about pulling that the camera back and taking the wider lens. The nature of these assets can change over time, too, right? So, yes. you know, when you talk about something starting out, you know, early on where the sponsors are very involved in the development of the tokens yes. and capitals being raised, that can change over time. And, yes. you know, is there an an appetite for, you know, eventually saying, well, something that started out as a security all of a sudden yes. becomes something other than a security? What you say is true. Look, when when you start out, if you are a security, you need to be registered. But once you get to this point, when the project becomes sufficiently decentralized, it no longer has the characteristics of a security anymore. And therefore, you can essentially uh, end your registration and you will go forward as a uh, uh, essentially an unregistered entity. I think that that would be essentially the creation of a regulatory sandbox. And we don't have one of those, unfortunately. We should. I think if there was one and there was a, uh, a period of time where the SEC could sort of observe and test and figure out what the point was where they could finally say, okay, now we can cut the cord and you can go forward without registration and without the oversight that the registration implies, that would be fine. The fear that the industry has is, once they get in, it'll be like Hotel California. You can check out anytime you want. You can just never leave the SEC once you're in there. We should have regulatory cooperation with clear lines of when 
you can leave the regulatory world because there are certain projects that are so decentralized that nobody could nobody could reasonably say Bitcoin, for example, is a security. Where, where would you go? Let's let's let you and I Ed, get in a car and go to Bitcoin headquarters. We'd be driving around for a long time. That's a crying need, but it doesn't exist, unfortunately. So, are there other significant cases that are that are out there um, mm-hmm. that you think will be impactful to the direction of you know how this regulatory landscape is going to develop? Oh, oh, sure. I mean, there's there's already been uh, impactful cases like the Kraken uh, staking suit has everybody that engages in staking looking at their products and do they have the same characteristics that Kraken did? Now, Kraken's staking was different from some of these other products and they have a that kraken has a global uh staking program and so frankly closing it down in the united states was not that big a deal for them this was more of an event than an sec action but the terra luna failure failure of risk controls it was a total absence of risk controls and and that really put the industry on its back foot there there, there may be some algorithmic stable coins that are traded on decentralized exchanges, but not many. Unfortunately, UST, which was the quote unquote stable coin from the Terra Luna project, wasn't actually a stable coin. It was an algorithmic stable coin. And once the algorithm failed, you know, it was curtains. And you, you, you would think, by the way, you would think that they would have stress tested all an algorithm. This is a model, right? You can stress test models. You'd think that you'd think that they would have done that. So far, there's been no evidence that they ever did, um, which is just a, an abject failure of risk controls and risk frameworks and risk appetites. Um, BlockFi was another one where, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, there are others, Genesis and Gemini, the same thing, where lending programs were put in place that while they worked, actually were, were generating uh, very attractive returns. Um, they were, BlockFi uh, was, <clears throat> Essentially, I don't want to say it was shut down. Their product was changed and they had to register. Uh, and then, unfortunately, they had exposure to FTX. And so that took them down. So many of the very big projects, by the way, in terms of of how regulation by enforcement is, is going to go forward, there's also going to be regulation by bankruptcy because what's going to be happening is in the Gemini case, in the Genesis case, in FTX, in BlockFi, which is still in bankruptcy, in Voyager, in Celsius, I don't think I think three hours is was uh, was Singapore. So I don't believe they're uh, in. in ba- I'm not even sure they're in any kind of bankruptcy. But um, all of those have different bankruptcy judges that are going to have to think about what a bankruptcy judge is supposed to do: gather the assets, value the assets, and distribute the assets to whoever the legitimate creditors are. Is in doing that, you've got to make some judgments about are they securities, are they something else, who has whose claim is superior to what other person's claim uh, might be, and that's going to have a lot to do with the characteristics of the asset itself. So there's going to be a there's going to be sort of a secondary market, if you will, of law coming out of these bankruptcy courts that's going to impact um, how these assets are dealt with going forward. The SEC is being very aggressive in filing lawsuits and sending Wells notices out. There's literally activity all over the country, some of which is getting attention, some of which is not. 
Um, but one of the things that I would note uh, that is a new, that is new, like brand new, yesterday, I believe, and we're having this discussion on March 10th, the New York Attorney General filed uh, litigation against an exchange called KuCoin. KuCoin is a Dutch digital asset exchange that, among other things, uh, allowed its customers to trade Ether. And this uh, case, this um, memorandum of law in support of the petition that the New York Attorney General filed states that Ether is a security. And Ether has never been, no regulator has ever claimed that Ether is a security. So that's that's something that is uh, new. And, you know, the, the new developments keep coming. And of course, um, you know, FTX is the granddaddy of them all. There's going to be a lot of, uh, th there is a lot of litigation about that. What exactly happened? Um, how, how did the fraud happen? Who did know about the fraud, should have known about the fraud, et cetera? And, and you can see, again, this is, I think it was the 8th of March, could have been the 7th, when Silvergate Bank, which had customers that did a lot of business with FTX, and FTX was a customer of theirs as well, Silvergate Bank agreed to an orderly wind down uh, of, of itself as a bank. It's going to sell its remaining deposits and loan portfolio, uh, and it has a certain amount of cash that it, it can dividend up to its holding company. But that is yet another casualty of the FTX uh, fiasco, and it, it, it is going to be a it's going to be a big piece of what's going forward with the digital asset community going forward because it's going to be very difficult for projects to exist if they can't get access to banking services because they need to send wires, they need to have secure places to hold their cash deposits. Uh, it's that kind of a weird step backward as if we're dealing with cannabis banking again. So it's it's going to be a while before we work our way out of the regulatory woods. Well, and, and I think that that's what makes it so challenging for the industry is that, you know, as opposed to looking to see what the regulations say and the guidance coming out from the the regulators it's really waiting to see how these court cases resolve and these cases like you had mentioned are with with the sec or with the bankruptcy yeah. courts and things and it's really kind of shaping up in a very fragmented right. manner right well I, I do want to emphasize this though is that entities that have size and that have capacity to build compliant risk systems are continuing to double down into this space and they'll be they'll be thriving so you know you can take a uh, you can take a, a you know a trading venue like stonex that would be one fidelity is another they're continuing to invest uh in this space um bank of america has projects jp morgan has projects city has projects bank of new york mellon for sure uh is is using blockchain and digital assets quite a bit. Then this was a headline a couple of years ago that JP Morgan had developed its own internal digital asset called a JPM coin that would simply help them transfer funds over a blockchain instead of having using instead of having to use wires, which is for a global bank like that makes you know all the sense in the world. So the um, so I would say that there still is going to be, um, you know, an, an, an appetite for this among those entities that can build compliant systems around it. For those that can't, it's going to be uh, a, a little bit 
tough. I, I don't know if you are a uh, if you're a project sponsor and your project is off the ground and it's running and you still haven't really spent a lot of time and attention on what you're going to do about monitoring KYC and AML, then you better get busy like real soon. Um, we're we're going to be continuing this discussion in future podcasts as these issues develop. Really appreciate you joining us and hope you can join us again. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our experts and how Oyster can help your firm, visit our website at oysterllc.com. And if you like what you heard today, follow us on whatever platform you listen to and give us a review. Reviews make it easier for people to find us. Have a great day. Thank you.